Hey guys, thanks for joining Because Life. So as some people saw on my Instagram story, I did do a little teaser for today's guest and I can't wait to have you guys all hear her story. Um, she's been a complete inspiration to me and I think everybody that knows her um, and who knows a little bit about her story and I think it just needs to be something that needs to be told. So Lindsay is creator of Truthitude, a women's empowerment blog and movement, and also the founder of Serving Creative, a copywriting and marketing company. In her young life, Lindsay had encountered and overcome an incredible amount of adversity. She broke the long cycle of poverty by rebelling against her family and becoming the first high school and college graduate in her family. Homeless and abandoned as a little girl by her drug addict mother, Lindsay was exposed to all the brutalities that living on the streets had to offer. As a kid, she endured physical, verbal, and sexual abuse. Even though all this happened, Lindsay cultivated her love of books and saw education as her way out. Fighting to break free of the stereotypes of a young Mexican girl raised by the streets and determined to control her narrative, she went from the hard life of poverty and gang activity to a college degree, which was against her family's will at the time. Lindsay now owns her own marketing company, Serving Creative, and has founded Truthitude, a blog and empowerment movement for women who have survived much of the same trauma that she has. And hopefully through sharing her story today, Lindsay hopes to inspire women and offer practical advice on how to break free from the scarcity mentality and create a life of their own design. Now Lindsay is spreading her message of female empowerment through her blog, and as well as a motivational speaker encouraging women to seek nurture and stay true to their truthitude. So again, I'm so excited. Hi, Lindsay. I'm so excited for you to join me today. Hey there. Thanks for having me. So the reason I wanted you to be a guest on the podcast is because I absolutely think you have an amazing story to tell that um, a lot of people will be inspired by and just need to hear what you've been through in your life and where you are today. So I'm going to kind of let you take the lead and tell the story however you want it, whatever you want to share. And let's just go with it. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, You know, this is actually the first time that I am sharing my entire story um, in such a public way. So I apologize if it's a little all over the place. But as you are aware, I've been through a lot of shit. So um, that brings me to my next thing is um, I swear a lot. So um, I apologize. Uh, Sorry, not sorry. I just really like the word fuck. So Um, it's therapeutic at times. So it works. Right. So guys, get ready for a great ride. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the easiest um, place to start is – You know, I've been through a lot in my life, and when I give people little snippets of what happened or if I tell them, you know, multiple things that happened, I'm often just hit with this face of disbelief because, um, you know, typically a person might experience one of the traumas or one of the experiences that I have, um, but it's kind of rare to meet somebody that's gone through kind of everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think when I, when you were telling me, and I'm sure you didn't tell me everything cause we just didn't have time, but I felt like I went through every single emotion I possibly could in like that hour and a half that we sat together and we're trying to relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like the spa was probably the best worst setting for that. Yeah. Um, cause <laughs> You did not sign up for that. Um. <laughs> and every time I thought she was done, I'll, like she would tell me something else. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. And by the way, this happened. And you're like, fuck, really? <laughs> There's more? Um, so I get that reaction a lot. Um, I don't share my story with a lot of people. Um, if I do, it's just little bits and pieces. Um, I've been told a million times that I should write a book or I should make a movie. Um, I don't feel like my movie would get released in theaters, though, because, um, like, there's everything. I mean, there's violence and sex and drugs and just fucking everything. Um, so it'd probably be, like, X-rated exclusive showing type of situation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm working on writing a book because I just feel like my story is 
just something that I want to capture, um, whether it's entertaining to people or not, doesn't really concern me. It's just shit that happened in my life and I want it out. Um, so the easiest place for me to start is just kind of chronologically because just things happened every year of my life. Um, I was born in Loveland, Colorado, but I spent the majority of my young childhood in Phoenix. Um, I have three living brothers and one brother that passed away and I'll kind of share how that happened. Um, but I was born in Loveland, lived in Colorado for the first couple of years of my life. Um, my dad was not really a part of our life. He was super abusive. My mom was a teen mom. She had my older brother when she was 16, me when she was 18 and my younger brother when she was 20. Um, and then a few other pregnancies and babies along the way after that. So, um, she started seeing this guy when I was like four years old and, um, she, you know, entered another abusive relationship. And this guy, Wayne, uh, he ended up running off with my babysitter. So my mom decided to follow him to Phoenix. Um, that's where he went with the babysitter. <laughs> and so we all of us got on a Greyhound bus and drove to Phoenix. And that's kind of where the saga begins. Um, my mom started dancing at a local strip club and that's where she was introduced to heroin, uh, her drug of choice. And that was when the cycle of homelessness started and poverty. Um, we lived on the streets, we lived in shelters, we lived in cars and I'm still like four and five years old at this point. Um, and I'm living on the streets. My mom would disappear for days at a time and just leave us. Um, and often we didn't have anywhere to go. So we would, you know, sleep in the park or, you know, sleep on the school playground and get ready for school in the school bathrooms and, you know, wash our face in the sink. Um, so her drug addiction kind of took precedence over everything. Um, my mom was really strung out for a really long time and she got eventually found Wayne my stepdad and they had a tumultuous relationship. I mean, they beat the hell out of each other right in front of us all the time. And, um, they were also really abusive to us. I mean, we got punched like we were adults, um, kicked and things thrown at us. And we were beaten with any kind of object you could think of brooms, extension cords, hangers, um, you know, and it was just really, hard growing up. Um, at this point, I'm like six years old. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's funny because the violence, you just kind of feel like that's your normal. You don't know that other kids don't get beat up by their parents. Like that's just discipline in your house. Um, right. you know, and like, I'm sure people have seen maybe some of my pictures or my videos on my social media, but I have a crooked nose. Um, and that's because my mom punched me in the face when I was six and broke my nose, you know? So that was just kind of my normal. Um, I didn't realize that it was, dis you know, dysfunctional until many, 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 many years later. <laughs> and at six years old, you're not really going out talking to your friends about it because you're just right. either embarrassed or just don't know how to bring it up or, you know, you, yeah. like you said, it's just the normal to you. So you feel like everybody's family does this to them. Right. Exactly. And you know, you're not going to tell your friends. And that was a big thing. Like I come from a, a Mexican family and we're very private about family business. Like you don't talk about stuff at home. Yeah. Um, you know, you just keep everything in the family business. You know, you don't trust anybody. You certainly don't tell a teacher or a counselor or your friends or anybody else that you're getting beat at home. And at that age, you wouldn't think to tell anybody because right. that's your normal. You don't know that your school friends aren't getting punched in the face. Um, <laughs> right. Like, and it's, it's so terrible. I mean, I'm able to like laugh at this kind of stuff, but if I were to think of like a five-year-old kid getting punched in the face, like it would break my heart. Right. But like, that was just every day to me, you know? Um, so you learn to behave. Um, you know, we went hungry a lot too. And that was another normal thing for us was, you know, it wasn't abnormal for us to sit on the kitchen floor 
and have candlelit dinner, you know, because we didn't have any electricity. <laughs> oh my God. You know? So we're like, oh, well, not everybody does this. People don't have sugar sandwiches. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. And food was a big thing. You know, we did go hungry. I mean, there were times that we had to dumpster dive for food. Um, I remember when I was like seven going in the back of bakeries and they would have these giant big plastic um, black garbage bags just full of like day old donuts. And that was what we ate. Or we would go in the back of Burger King and, and McDonald's and dumpster dive to see if there was any like, you know, hamburgers that had been left under the heat lamp for too long. Um, so you kind of just learn to fend for yourself. And when my mom, you know, would just disappear for days on end, you're hungry. So you go to the grocery store and you steal an onion, like you just do what you got to do. And at that age, you kind of become like a little adult. Yeah, you know, Plus you and, had your brothers as well that you were right. And we're fending for each other, you know, me and my older brother. So the three older kids were only two years apart. So me and my older brother kind of ran the show and my youngest brother was just really tiny. Um, so you kind of just become like this little adult really, really fast. Um, and so that's when we kind of started running around with, you know, the hoods is what we call them or gangbangers, um, because that was a source of, you know, protection for us. And that was a way we could make some money. We used to, you know, steal shit off the back of Radio Shack trucks and sell it. You know, I mean, we were selling like little Discman and, you know, <laughs> Walkmans and shit, but we we're selling it to make a little bit of money so that we didn't have to dig in the garbage for food. Um, so that was just kind of a reality for us. And when we did have the luxury of having food and groceries and a place to live, um, I remember telling a story that, you know, apparently was really shocking to somebody <laughs> about cereal and when my brothers and I were growing up, if we had the luxury of having cereal, my older brother would eat the bowl of cereal first, and then he would send the bowl with the leftover milk to me down the table, and I'd fill my bowl with cereal and eat cereal. And then after I was done with that cereal, whatever milk was left would get passed to my little brother, and he would have a bowl of cereal. Um and we just, that was our normal. We thought we were just sharing, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, living off of Top Ramen, you know, and sharing one package of Top Ramen between three kids. Um, I didn't realize until I was an adult and paying for things and buying food and just realizing how fucking poor we really were. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not joking about cutting up one onion and frying it up. And that was our dinner, you know? Um, so yeah, you just kind of get a new or a different sense of normal. Um, so that was kind of what we did as far as like being homeless and hungry. And, you know, my mom was so strung out. And at one point she couldn't even be a stripper anymore because she was so fucked up on drugs. And so she had to start, prostituting and you know we had dudes coming in and out of our house when we had one and you know we stayed with a few of my mom's clients um and slept on their floor um we were in and out of you know crack houses you know when my mom had to see a client you know so it was uh <laughs> different I was you know sitting at the end of the bar when my mom was giving lap dances, you know, and not a lot of six or seven year olds have ever seen, you know, a strip a lap club. Dance. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should they ever. Right. Um, but that was just my reality. Um, you know, one of the pivotal moments of my childhood was um, my mom got pregnant. And she had my younger brother, Anthony. So then we, there was four kids and we were staying with one of her clients, um, this guy named Dave, who had like the most disgusting apartment you could even imagine. I mean, there was just garbage. He was like a hoarder 
And then he had all these cats and he let us live there because he was just so infatuated with my mom. Cause you have to understand like my mom, yeah, she was a junkie and you know, whatever, but she was beautiful at one point. I mean, my mom was just this statuesque five, nine caramel skin, just beautiful, big toothy smile. I mean, she was just beautiful and the drugs just deteriorated her. So anyway, he was in love with her and he let us stay at his house with these four badass kids. Um, so she had my brother, Anthony and, um, because of how disgusting his house was, um, he got sick and he got meningitis. And, um, when he was eight months old, he, he passed away. Um, and that was a pretty major turning point in my childhood. Um, cause I, you know, I was the girl and I was charged with, um, taking care of my brothers and my baby brother, especially out, you know, my mom was fucking gone all the time. So when he died, um, my mom just went off the fucking deep end. I mean, she was already strung out on drugs, but this just destroyed her. And rightfully so. I mean, to be fair, any mother losing a child that just, there's no coming back from that, you know, and God bless the women who are able to like come back from that. But my mom couldn't. And so we were shipped out, you know, to Colorado to live with my grandparents after my brother died. And, you know, that was the first funeral I had ever been to. And just seeing his little baby body in this little tiny casket, like you never forget that. And that was, fuck, that was 25 years ago. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. And you never like losing a sibling. You never forget that. And you know, I had to give my mom some grace when I became an adult because, you know, she was so fucking strung out. She couldn't take care of us, but I hated her. I blamed her because if she had been taking care of us the way that she should have, he wouldn't have gotten sick. Do you think she ever blamed you, even though it wasn't, you know, nothing to do with you, nothing, not not your fault, not your responsibility, but in that sense, because she was so strung out and high all the time and gone all the time, I I don't know, did she put like that, okay, well, you're the oldest girl, you have to take care of everybody. Does she ever blame you? No. Or was she kind of took responsibility? No, my stepdad and my mom, they blamed each other. Okay. Um, They blamed each other because they were both junkies. And they both, you know, weren't taking kid care of the baby. So they blamed each other and that kind of escalated the violence in our home. Um, My stepdad was hitting us a lot more, hitting her a lot more. She was hitting us a lot more. Um, And so after my brother died, um, one of her clients paid for the funeral and gave her money to get a headstone for him. And uh, she used it to buy drugs. Uh, so he paid for our plane tickets to fly out to Colorado to stay with my grandparents. Cause my mom was just like a hot mess, even worse than she already was. So we lived with my grandparents for, um, probably like a year and my mom was still in Arizona. We were now in Colorado with my grandparents and, you know, I would love to say that the story gets better and that living with my grandparents was awesome, but it wasn't, um, they were awful to us they hit us they you know were awful to us the only good thing was that we had a roof over our head and clean clothes and food um but they were pretty terrible to us and um my mom wasn't gone very long she ended up getting pregnant again came back to Colorado and she spent her pregnancy in Colorado and that was probably the cleanest I've ever seen my mom, even though I know she was still doing drugs because my younger brother, Brennan was born, um, addicted and he was, um, pretty sickly as a baby. Um, thankfully he's healthy and he's 23 years old now, but, um, you know, she had him to replace Anthony and she would say that all the time. Um, So when Brennan was born, um, my mom hated Colorado. And so when he was born, she decided that we were going to move back to Phoenix. 
So we packed all of our shit into a trailer and drove our asses back to Phoenix. Mind you, we didn't have like she didn't have a job. She didn't have a place to live. We went right back to being fucking homeless in Phoenix. Where was your stepfather still involved in this point or not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, And they were both right back on drugs. So we went back to just this living in poverty again. And my mom was even more absent. And my brother was, my older brother was getting really involved in like all the gang shit. And then I was getting roped into a lot of it. We were, you know, involved in drive-by shootings and our house got shot up. Our apartment got shot up and we were running around with all the, you know, the hoods. And uh, as you can imagine, I mean, I'm like nine years old at this point running around with gangbangers. And as you can imagine, being a young girl on the streets, I was very exposed. And I encountered a lot of the things that a young, vulnerable girl would. I mean, I was sexually assaulted twice. I was raped twice. And all of this was before I was 10 years old. And, you know, I've held a gun. I've had a gun held to me. (laughs) And, you know... All the meanwhile, my mom's just fucking put needles in her arm. And she didn't even care anymore after my brother died about hiding it from us. She was shooting up right in front of us. Um, I remember even going in the closet um, to get something and a bag of syringes falling on me. Um, So we bounced around living in the shelters. We lived in motels. We lived in crack houses. We lived on the streets. We lived in cars, like just more of the same. And that was just our normal. And the one constant though, was that I always tried to stay in school and I never wanted to miss a day of school. One, because that meant I got breakfast and lunch. And two, because that was kind of like my safe space. And I just fell in love with reading and learning and it's amazing to me that none of my teachers like caught on to what was happening. Yeah. Like we had child services called on us a couple of times, but like nothing happened. And we were the kids that should have been taken away. Yeah. Like, (laughs) like my mom, you know, dealing drugs out of the fucking house. She's a prostitute. We got a junkie for a stepdad. We're missing school. Like nobody's business. Like, we should have been taken away, but we didn't. And that's just how broken the system is. I mean, I changed schools, elementary schools, a dozen times. I had, like, just fourth grade, I had four different schools. You know? So that came with its own set of challenges. Like, there were always just gaps in the learning, and I was always the new kid. And so that was hard. Um, And, you know, after I was raped for the last time um that was the that was the worst time because that was when I was like 10 years old um or well I was eight when it happened but from the period from like eight to ten that was kind of how I defined myself like my body was just that's what I was for and I became hypersexual you always hear of a lot of assault victims and rape victims becoming this um you know, super reclusive and hiding and not wanting any attention. But I was the opposite. I went the complete pendulum swing and I was hypersexual. I mean, what 10 year old wants to be sexy? Like who, who even thinks about that? Um, But that was just what I figured my value was. And so, you know, I became sexually active too young and, you know, it was just, like I was starting to live up to the stereotypes and follow in the same steps as my mom. Like I was scared of that. Um, but thankfully, you know, when I was, I think I was nine or 10 at this point, somehow my mom came back into the picture and we were all kind of reunited and we were staying at a motel six. And this is when things really started to shift. Um, we were staying at a motel six And it was me, my, just my mom and my four brothers. And Brennan was like two months old at this point. Um, We were staying in a motel six in Phoenix and it was like checkout time. They came banging on the door to kick us out. And my mom was fucking gone. My mom was just gone again. 
So we put all of our stuff in black garbage bags and drug them out to the corner of the street. And we just sat there and it was me, my, you know, my two brothers and then the baby. And I remember stealing the ice bucket because we didn't have any food or anything. And it's like a hundred fucking degrees in Phoenix. And I didn't want my baby brother to dehydrate. So we're just sitting on the curb in sunny slope. So back up. Sunny Slope is this ghetto-ass part of Phoenix, and that's where we lived. Um, And anybody I've ever met who's familiar with Phoenix always gives me, like, the same, like, ooh, face, you know, because it's just this terrible fucking place. Um, So anyway, we're just these four kids just sitting on the curb of a street in the desert. And finally, my mom shows up, and she's pissed that they kicked us out, and she's strung out. And so my dad, my stepdad shows up, he has a cell phone, which back then it was a big deal. Like only drug dealers had cell phones. Um, and he let us call each of us a friend to come and pick us up. So we had somewhere to stay. So my older brother called one of his hoodlum friends. Um, my younger brother called um, his friend whose mom was a dancer friend of my mom's. Um, and she came and picked him up. And then I called my friend who I had just met because we had just started a new school and her name was Tanya. And I called Tanya and I said, Hey, um, you know, could I come spend the night? And she was like, yeah, let me go ask my mom. And I said, well, can you ask her if my baby brother can come too? And she was like, yeah, hold on. And her mom gets on the phone and her mom's like, what's going on? And I was like, well, I need to come spend the night and I need to bring my little brother too because we don't have anywhere to go. And she was like, where are you? We're coming to get you. So this woman, her name's Miriam, this woman fucking saved my life. Um, She came and picked me and my little brother up and they were like super religious. I think they were Mennonite, Um, (laughs) but they came and picked us up. And they treated us like we were their own kids. And I lived with this woman and her family for like six months. And she took care of my baby brother. And he was still really sickly because he was like born addicted to drugs. And so she like nurtured him back to health. And he put on all kinds of weight. And we got three meals a day. And we were made to go to Sunday school. And we had like strict bedtime and we had to say our prayers and read the Bible. And it was like the best thing I'd ever experienced in my life because they didn't like hit you when you got mad, when they got mad. And if you got in trouble, like, you know, you didn't have to miss dinner and like you got three square meals a day like this. It was like the best time of my life. Um, and so I didn't even care that like I couldn't wear pants and I could only wear skirts and that I couldn't cut my hair and that I wasn't allowed to say shut up. Like I didn't even care like how strict it was. I just knew that like I got a bath every day and I had a bed and I got food and like I didn't have to worry about my house getting shot up. So we stayed with them for like six months and um Finally, you know, it was over the summer and then school started and school was in session for a couple of months and I couldn't be put in school because she didn't have the rights to put me in school. So her next door neighbor actually worked for social services and she knew what was going on the whole time and she didn't say anything. But because I was missing school, she talked to Miriam and she was like, look, like I have to report these kids. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my job. Like, they're missing school. Their mom is nowhere to be found. Like, I am i can't risk my job. And so Miriam sat me down and she told me, she was like, "You do you have any family? Do you have anywhere you can go? Like, and I said, well, maybe my grandparents. So that was on a Thursday night. I called my grandparents and I said, you the same grandparents? Yeah, same grandparents, my mom's parents. Um, I called them on a Thursday night. And I said, you have to come get us because we're going to get reported on Monday. And back then, Maricopa County was like infamous for kids dying in foster care. And like we were safer on the streets and we didn't want to go into foster care. And then the four of us would be split up, too. And with my brother being so sickly and an infant, like he would have died 
Like there was just no chance. So my grandparents came and got us that Sunday. And I don't know how my mom got wind of us leaving, but she showed up to the house. My brothers came and we got in the van and we're about to leave. And my mom comes up to me and she goes, I don't give a fuck about these boys, but I'll come back for you. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, who says that to their kid, you know? Um, so we went to live with my grandparents. Um, I was 10 at this point. And, you know, I thought that moving in with my grandparents, our life would change and it would get better. And, you know, that we were going to be in a safer situation. And in a lot of ways, we were. We had clean clothes. We had food. We had, you know, the same bed to sleep in every night. But my grandparents were strict and they didn't really know what to do with these kids who had never had any rules or structure or anybody telling them what to do. And we weren't, I don't think we were bad kids, but like we had been little adults for so long. Right. And, you know, my brother was always getting in trouble with the cops. And thankfully, like I managed to kind of skate around some of that. Um, I had my fair share of uh, run-ins with the popo, but um <laughs> <laughs> I managed to dodge the bulk of it. Um, but yeah, so like my grandparents were super hard on us and my grandpa beat the shit out of us. And he was like in the military, super strict. And my grandma was more like verbally abusive and most of it was directed towards me. I mean, she would tell me all the time, like what a piece of shit I was and how I was going to be just like my mom and I'm a little slut. And, you know, her favorite thing to call me was a cold hearted bitch. Because I just learned to like tune her out and I didn't care what she said. Um, so and this is your mom's parents? Yeah. Okay. And I blamed myself for a really long time that I brought us into like a worse situation. And I was like, God, I thought, you know, calling my grandparents would be better and it wasn't. And, you know, I really hated myself for a long time because of that. And um, it was really hard. So then we just lived with my grandparents from then on at that point. My mom would pop in and out every so often, um, and but she would never really stay very long. She would come from Phoenix, and then she would stay in Colorado for a little bit, and then she would go back to Phoenix. Um, the last time I saw my mom, I was 12, and she had come back from Phoenix, and it was Mother's Day, and we we're all going to celebrate Mother's Day at my grandma's house. And I remember we ran out of hot dog buns and my grandpa gave my gra my mom 20 bucks to run up to Kmart and get hot dog buns. And my mom never came back. Um, and that was it for me. I was like, fuck her. I don't want anything to do with her. Like, how could she do this again? And so I cut her off. My brothers, my family, they would talk to her whenever she would call. But she never came back from Arizona after that. Um, and I didn't talk to her at all. Um, and then in 2016, um, the drug addiction finally, uh, took over her body and she died. Um, and I, I was at work. I was at a work event when I found out. Um, and I didn't think it would affect me as much as it did. Cause I hated her for so long, you know, and I thought I would have time to like make it better. I thought I would be her lifeline some point. I just thought, let me get my life going really good. And then I'll have the capacity to reach out to her and be that lifeline for her. Because as an adult, I realized like how sick she was. Um, but as a kid, you just hate your mom because she's a fucking junkie. But as an adult, you learn, like, she's sick. And, you know, when she died, I, w I was really angry and I was really upset and I was really sad and I was surprised at how sad I was. Um, and, you know, in true fucking fashion, she couldn't go out with, a you know, like a normal person. She had to go out with a bang. She, like, she died living in some crack house. And when the paramedics and police came the dude that she was living with barricaded himself in the house because there were all kinds of explosives and drugs and guns. 
so they had yeah so they had like the fucking SWAT team the bomb squad (laughs) so I couldn't even I couldn't even get her body until all of that shit was taken care of and you know I'm the only one in my family who has my shit together so it was all on me to figure out am I going back to Phoenix to get her body are we bringing her body to Colorado is she going to have a funeral? And of course my family wanted the big fucking funeral and the mass and, you know, cause they're Catholic and they wanted all of that. And I'm like, no, if it's up to me and it's on my fucking dime, I called the coroner's office in Phoenix and I was like, let's cremate her, ship her ass to Colorado. <laughs> and I know that sounds really harsh, but I'm like, well, fuck, like, you know, I've been detached from this woman for so many years and now Yet again, she's my responsibility. So I had her cremated. I had her FedExed to Colorado. She's literally still, I'm not kidding you, she's still in the Tupperware container inside the, inside the FedEx box. Stop it. I'm not fucking kidding you. Stop it. <laughs> like, we're, like, my grandparents talked about getting an urn. They talked about getting a beautiful box. Like, no, she's in the FedEx box still. Oh, my God. I Wait, know. okay, for context... How old are you now? I'm 33. Okay. Just to let you guys know where all these years fall into place. Right. So, so yeah, I know I'm kind of all over the place. So my mom, last time I saw her, I was 12. So middle school was hard for me. Um, and just growing up with my grandparents was really hard for me. Like I mentioned, I had sex at an early age and I really struggled to not be a stereotype and I didn't want to be a teen mom. And so I went and got myself on birth control, which was awesome. Um, (laughs) But the good thing was that, you know, I stayed in school. School was always just super important to me. I loved books from an early age. I remember the first book I ever read was The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. And I was like four. Um, And I just fell in love with books and I love to read. And in fact, that was also because it kind of gave you like an escape to exactly life every time you read a new book. That was exactly it. It was like my safe space. Books were my safe space. And the longer I could stay in school and not be at home, the better I was. Um, And it's funny because my my love for reading actually started with Dr. Seuss. And I remember reading all the Dr. Seuss books in my school library. And I actually just last week went to the Dr. Seuss Museum in Massachusetts. And I'm not kidding you. I like burst into tears when I walked into the museum because Mm. I was like, holy crap, like this is what basically saved my life when I was a kid, you know? Um, So I worked really hard in school. um, And it didn't always come easy to me because you know, I had so many gaps from moving around so much and I fell behind because I had changed school so many times that, you know, I missed an entire half of second grade, you know, so I'm sure that there were a lot of things that I was missing and things I didn't learn. Um, But thankfully, like I was, I was really fucking smart when I was a kid. So I was able to do really well in school and I enjoyed learning and I just wanted to get really good grades. And I never wanted to be home because, you know, living with my grandparents was so hard. And my grandma was just, we had a terrible relationship. She was so verbally abusive. So I joined every fucking club I could. I was in student council and cheerleading and volleyball and did community service. And I was in all the choirs my school offered. And I was just in everything. And as soon as I got a job, I, you know, saved my money. And I was like, just super involved with school. And most of it was just to avoid being home. Um, And it was just school was my way out. And I just, I couldn't wait to move out, honestly. And when I was 15, um, my grandparents, my grandma told me that I needed to sign myself out of school so that I could stay home with my grandparents and the baby and and make sure that I was helping around the house and so I rebelled and decided that no I was actually going to graduate high school and be the first high school graduate in my family Um, I didn't think that college was ever for me college was actually not even on my radar so I didn't even take the ACTs when I was a junior and my counselor came to me and was like "Uh, you're literally the only junior in your class that didn't take the ACTs like what the fuck's up with that and I just told him, I was like, well, I'm not going to college. That's, that's not a reality for me. I, I can't go to the college. 
And he just looked at me and he's like, what do you mean? Like, you're top of your class. You're in all of these activities. You're president of fucking everything. Like, what do you mean you're not going to college? And I'm like, well, how can I go to college? You know? And so thankfully he believed in me. He forced me to take the ACTs. Um, I had teachers and mentors in, in my school that would even sign me out of school so that they could take me to like scholarship fairs and they risked their jobs to make sure that I went to college because they just really believed in me that much. Um, So I brought up the idea of going to college to my grandparents and they reacted horribly. They were like, who do you think you are? You think you're so much better than us. Why do you need to go to school? You're better off just finding a rich guy and getting married so he can take care of you and you need to have babies. And I'm like, well, I don't even want kids. And I remember when I said, I'm not having kids, my grandma was saying, well, what else are you going to (laughs) do? And I just looked at him like anything else. Right. Like, (laughs) don't get me wrong. I love kids, but that, like, I knew from a very young age that I didn't want to have kids. Right. So I never brought up the idea of going to college again because I just knew like they were just going to shit all over that dream. So I managed to kind of sneak around Um, sign myself out of school and and figure out the application process. I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't know how to apply for college. And then came the FAFSA. And I'm like, well, fuck, like, how am I supposed to do this? I don't have any financial aid information. And so I had to contact my dad. Um, So my dad is totally normal, run of the mill guy, has a job, straight laced, lived 10, 15 minutes away from me my whole life. He Which didn't is want insane. us. Yeah. He just didn't want us. So I had to reach out to my dad and say, look, my grandparents didn't legally adopt me, so I can't use their tax information for this paper. And they don't even know I'm applying to college. Can you please help me? And he didn't want to help me. He was like, I don't want you giving out my financial information. And I'm like, I literally have never asked you for anything in my entire fucking life. I just need you to sign this paper. And he finally agreed to it. And he said, okay, I'll do it just this once. Well, anybody who knows the college process, you have to reapply every year. So that was fun. Um, Trying to figure that out every fucking year. So anyway, I applied to college. I get accepted. I remember my senior year of high school getting my letter of acceptance uh, during Christmas break. And I remembered telling my grandparents I got accepted to college. Now, most families, that's a time for celebration, right? Like you open the big envelope, you're excited, and they're like, yeah, we're going to college. Not my family. They were like, oh, yeah, you think you're so smart. How are you going to pay for this big, fancy college degree? Well, me being, you know, the person smart. that I am, I was like, well, here's my financial aid award letter. Here's the dorms I'm living in because I'm moving out. And here's how I'm going to pay for it. I got so many scholarships and grants that I got paid to go to school my first year. My grandparents, after I had that conversation, they didn't talk to me for six months. They only told me if it was related to chores or something to do with my brother. That was the only time they would talk to me. And I said, I'm moving out in August. This is my move-in date. And so I remember that whole time they wouldn't talk to me at all. Like at all. I'm telling you, like silent treatment. So when move-in, like move-out day came, They made me pack all my stuff and put it out on the front porch. And I was only allowed to take whatever I had bought myself. Now, they didn't know that the entire time I was in high school and I had a job that I had gotten a storage unit and a bank account and was buying shit that I knew I would need to live on my own. Stop it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll take just little few boxes of stuff and some clothes. And they made me put it on the porch the night before. And the morning that I left, my grandma didn't even come out of the room. My grandpa didn't even come out of the room to say goodbye. My grandma said, all right, you're out, you're out. And so I drove to college. And it was like a half an hour away. 
drove to college and my family didn't talk to me for like the first six months that I was in college. And when I would call um, the house at night to read my little brother a story before he went to bed, if my grandma answered the phone, she would hang up on me and he would have to call me back so I could read him his story at night. Um, interesting about my little brother, we're 10 years apart. Um, I've had him since he was two months old, you know, cause my mom abandoned us on the fucking side of the road at a motel six. <laughs> um, when we moved with my grandparents, they told me he's your responsibility. We raised our kids. So he's like my son and he was my responsibility to take care of like his schoolwork and get him dressed. And I potty trained him and, you know, I stayed up with him at night when he was sick and, you know, he would come sleep with me when he got scared in the middle of the night. Like he was my kid. He is my kid. Um, and he's 23 years old now, which I think we spoke about how this kind of goes towards why you don't yeah. want to have kids now because you've been there. done. That. I've already done it. Yeah. yeah. I've already had a fucking kid and you know, he, his dumbass. he's gotten in so much trouble. He literally, the fuckery never stops in my family. He literally just got <laughs> arrested. Okay. Like all three of my brothers have gotten arrested on a holiday. He chose Christmas this year. So, you know, tradition. Traditions. Um, (laughs) Trying to make it normal now. Like, it's just fucking insane. Sometimes I'm like, really? Really? Like, most people have, like, cookie exchanges. No. We go see the bail bondsmen. We we go bail out people. Um, so yeah, like college, you know, was hard because I was on my own and I was working three jobs at one point to make it through college. And I resented the other kids a lot because I didn't get to go to class and then go to parties. Like I had to bust my ass and go to college. And I was a straight A student for the most part. But when I got to college, it was hard. And I failed my first class ever and had a mental breakdown And I just really started to doubt myself and whether or not I could actually do it. Um, So it was really hard that you say you had a mental breakdown because you failed a college level class and you didn't have a mental breakdown at any other point in your life. No, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm in awe of you or (laughs) you're just crazy. (laughs) You know, the thing is like once I got to college and I was still in survival mode, but I wasn't in literal survival mode right and when you're going through when you live in poverty and you're homeless and you are dealing with violence every day you don't have the luxury of feeling your feelings right you don't get to feel sad or grief or anger or any of those things you don't have the luxury of having a mental breakdown well that in also, survival mode right then also you had no control over what was happening where with your classes right in college you did so when you lose that little bit of control you know right that can cause any type of breakdown to happen and that's just it. it was like that was the one thing I was super good at yeah you know and then it was like well fuck now I don't even have that and I was very isolated when I went to college because I didn't have any really friends I had one roommate who was amazing but she was gone all the time um so my saving grace was this girl down the hall in my dorm room, she wanted to go to this informational meeting for a sorority. And I, I mean, this stage in my life, I'm still like thug life. Okay. I'm Chola, like <laughs> badass. Like I'm not going to join no fucking sorority. I don't even really know what that is. Right. So <laughs> they're done that. It's not a gang. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll go to this meeting for, you know, she just wanted support. So she was like, yeah, come to this meeting for me, you know, with me about this sorority and I'm like oh god so I go to the informational meeting and it's all these Latina girls and I was like oh my god there's brown faces (laughs) you know and so I listened to what they had to say and they're saying how hard it was and all the benefits and like I was just like you know what I'll try it I'll check it out so I started the process and I realized that you really couldn't I mean you could quit But I didn't want to quit. I was like, I'm not a quitter. I can fucking do this. I've been through. And what challenged me and what kind of intrigued me was in the informational, one of the girls was like, this is one of the hardest things that you'll ever go through. (laughs) 
And I was like, really? Try me, bitch. Right. <laughs> right. And that's honestly, that's what got me to sign up. I was like, fuck. Challenge accepted. Right. So I did it. And I remember, you know, I pledged. Well, my organization is a non-pledging organization. Um, so joined. I joined. Yes, I joined Sigma Lambda Gamma. And I am so proud to be a Gamma. And I loved it. It tore me open and tore me to shreds in the best way. I had never been vulnerable. I had never shared my story with anybody. And this group of women just became my safe space. They became family. Yeah. And I'm closer to my sisters than I am anybody in my family. I love these girls with all my heart and it transformed me. It, you know, molded my identity as a powerful woman. It molded my identity as, you know, a scholar and academic and an activist. And it just really transformed who I was and gave me this community to belong to because I didn't belong anywhere. And it was funny because when I would share pieces of my story with my sisters, it would scare the shit out of them. And I did make the comment. I was like, man, I went from joining a gang to being a gamma. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember saying, I was like, dang, this is like a lot like a gang. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, my big sister's like, no, it's not. It is not a gang. And I'm like, yeah, but it kind of like is, you know. (laughs) That was my when I told my mom that I was going to join a sorority. Um that was her immediate response. Like, Oh, it's a gang. I was like, it's not a gang. I'm like, calm down. Everybody calm down. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I totally get where, you know, it, I mean, it kind of is, it's, it's, I mean, it's a club, right? So every club can be seen as a gang because you have to kind of be involved and be in it. And some clubs you have to, you know, like apply for (laughs) technically. Right. There's, yeah, there's a process that you (laughs) go through to join. (laughs) And so I went through that process. Now, it wasn't obviously anything like joining a gang. Right. But, you know, like we have colors that we represent and we have hand signs. That was the biggest thing was the hand sign. I was like, oh, dang, I know how to throw up signs. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, God, Lindsay, like, what are we going to do with you? Um, You know, so that was college. Um, And honestly, that's probably a good place to pause is college so guys that was part one of truthitude um there was a lot to unpack there and i hope you guys are definitely intrigued and inspired by her story so far um stay tuned for part two coming in a few days